Rabbanit Leah Sarna and Rabbi David Wolkenfeld. Shalom and welcome to the Straw Hat. We are the official podcast of Anshe Shalom B'nai Israel Congregation, an Orthodox synagogue in the beautiful Lakeview neighborhood of Chicago, Illinois. This week's episode features two segments and also an interview. Our first segment is about mornings. Mornings are really tough. But actually, there's all sorts of beautiful tefillot and brachot you can and should add into them in order to make them a little bit less tough. So we'll be talking about that. Next, we'll be talking about some of what we've been learning in Dafyomi recently about women's obligation in tefillah, and particularly the Shemona Esrei, and um, some different understandings about what that obligation is. And lastly, we'll have an interview with a very beloved longtime member of the Anshe Shalom community, Dr. Klevs. So at Daily Minion recently in the mornings, I've been teaching some of the halachot of what to do when you first wake up in the morning. I've been pitching it to the Minion crew as like, between waking up and arriving here, <laughs> what should what have accomplished already? Making lunches for children. Yes, exactly. <laughs> All sorts of important <laughs> spiritual pursuits. I hear one could also equally halachically acceptably make lunches at night. Yeah, uh, well... For a conversation for a different time. It doesn't always work out quite that way. Um, you're not the first to suggest that. <laughs> I'm just saying it's a possibility, not that it's a requirement. Um, anyways, so I, I just thought we would talk through kind of, there. Are, there's a number of kind of options of ways that the following things could all be organized. Um, but certainly they ideally should all sort of feature. So this one's probably the most commonly known, but Waking up in the morning, the first thing out of your mouth should be moda if you're a man, or moda if you're a woman. Um, giving thanks to God that your soul was returned to you. Um, because uh, Judaism has this sense, or at least many Jewish texts have this sense, that, that sleeping is a little bit like death. The, the Gemara and Brachot that we've been learning in Dafyomi talks about how King David never slept more than 60 breaths. Uh, it's a little confusing confusing like how much time that is because he never wanted to have a death experience and and you only enter into a deep enough death-like sleep after that amount of time but what we're grateful for when we wake up in the morning after please god more than 60 breaths of sleep uh, at least for the not new parents amongst our listeners is that we've had this sort of like quasi-death experience and we're grateful to now be be back awake and alive in, in the world. Um, then the question is, what happens next? Yeah, so what happens next? Um, so many people feel strongly that it is essential to prioritize Nitzilat Yadayim after getting out of bed. There's a lot of different reasons for this. Certainly Nitzilat Yadayim with a bracha needs to happen at some point between getting out of bed and eating anything or davening, um, but uh, there's different perspectives on how essential Nitzilat Yadayim is. Certainly in more like people with more Hasidic lineage, meaning many Hasid- people with Hasidic lineage leave their Nitzilat Yadayim under their bed, ready, under their bed, so that they don't even have to move in the morning without, without washing. Um, so it's just in progression. The most strict um, about Nigelwasser, washing one's fingernails uh, at dawn, or when, when one wakes up, it would be before you leave your bed, you have a cup and a bowl right by your bed. Next progression would be it's okay to get out of your bed and, and make your way to, to a, a sink, sink and wash your hands there. Um, the next would be actually to use the restroom first and then do anything I'm on your way out. Um, of that. And the last would be to do Nitya Idai maybe formally on your way into Shul. 
but um, any like hand washing out of a tap in the morning would accomplish some amount of nitiyadayim enough that you could do anything you needed to do before that. Yeah. So, so just just for like full disclosure, I uh, wash my hands using a washing, uh, cup. washing cup from a sink in the bathroom after I wake up, and I think I say ani then. It's been a few hours. I don't really remember. <laughs> Sorry. Um, and I, um, after using the toilet, I would and leaving the bathroom, I say ashayatzer bracha, washing my hands again, uh, and then before going into the base medrash, before going to start shachrit, I wash my hands again, also with a cup, and say an alantiyadayim bracha. So I say that bracha immediately proximate to beginning tefillah. Mm-hmm. Um, and because there's different positions about what. Um, prompts that bracha, and, I've and s- one of them, of those, a very strong one, is that it's actually the davening that prompts the bracha. And having like in between waking up and um, walking into shul, I put on my shoes, and I, I got, which is also a prompt for, uh, for yeah. So, so that's so. Uh, hopefully that that's one of the options that that, that you've uh, uncovered in your uh, <laughs> you know uh, perusal of the halachic sources. That that's what I've been doing for now quite a few years. And sure. Uh, so just to recap, kind of what we said so far is that there's really a lot of options of what can happen in the morning, but the the makeup of those options is generally moda'ani um, netila edaim at some point, the bracha for netila edaim at some point, and um, there's a strong tradition to do even if you don't normally wash three on each side um, for your before eating netila edaim. When you wake up in the morning, there's a strong um, there's a strong custom to do three on each side. Usually, people do this one alternating, um, so like one on the right, one on the left, one on the right, one on the left, one on the right, one on the left, um, and like the the way I learned it is that in the morning you alternate and then any other time that you would wash so let's say on bread you don't alternate you do one two one two whatever one two three one two three yeah so two more points one is i have a like a editorial comment i have a question uh editorial comment uh, i think there's a um value in just like allowing these rituals to just kind of set a sense of priorities in one's morning that you wake up and like let those first moments be spiritual moments of gratitude of preparing your mind your body and your soul to for shachrit and for the uh, avodat hashem that you're going to do the service of god you'll do that day Uh, i've found it increasingly challenging uh since i replaced my alarm clock with my a smartphone, uh, where mm-hmm. it's so easy, like you wake up and you push a button and all of a sudden there's what emails that I miss, you know, since going to bed last night and what's happening in the world. And it just, it just draws you away from all, of, you know, so I, I, I actually, I have like this goal of like buying, like trying to find like an alarm clock and sort of going back to using that, keeping maybe the phone like away from my bedroom. And like, you know, the emails can wait till after Shachrit or at least till after, um, until you die and, and just let those morning moments be, um, you know, as the halacha imagine them. So that was my that's my editorial comment. It probably help would help. I mean, people find that it helps them fall asleep at night. Also, to not have your phone. By oh, your for bed. sure, for sure. Yeah, that's yeah, correct, indeed. Uh, <laughs> and that, yeah. Um, my question: What about Birkot Shachar? Like we we yeah. Great. So good. Um, so once upon a time, Birkot Shachar, what we, what we call Birkot Shachar, which is from um, thanking God for making the rooster, right? Um, through all of the like identity brachot, all of that used to be said kind of in order with 
the thing that you were doing. So you would, my favorite one is, you would put on your turban in the morning and say, who crowns Israel with glory. Um, I, I want to personally bring that back to my uh, practice. But now uh, the halakha has become that you see them all as this like set. Um, once you're maybe in shul, in some shuls, our shul starts after this because their sense was like people were getting them confused. Um, so, okay, so there's a lot of brachot to say in the morning in addition to which we've talked about. Um, there's two brachot um, that you say just on like the functioning of your body also. So asher yatsar, even if you don't use the restroom in the morning, you'd still say asher yatsar in the morning. And that goes together with elokaina shema, which is again, like just one of the most like astoundingly beautiful uh, statements about ourselves. Actually, Rabbi Janiszewski talked about it when he was here about um, like in terms of his like positive psychology stuff. These I statements about ourselves, like I was created pure, my soul was created pure, are hugely important identity markers. And to start off again, as you said, right, to start off your day with with those kinds of statements are not just kind of theologically important, but Rabbi Danishevsky was also arguing that they were psychologically important in terms of keeping ourselves sort of mentally healthy. Um, so those those also should be said. Um, Birkota Torah get thrown into this mix as well. Um, and so those are not. Some, one time I mentioned to someone, oh, Birkota Torah, and they thought I meant the bracha that someone would make before and after getting an aliyah. Um, so those are very similar, but mm-hmm. those are not ones you would say every day, even if you're like a Kohen and every time you read Torah, you get an Aliyah. That's not what I'm talking about. Um, first of all, we don't read Torah every day, but second of all, there's Birkota Torah that even if you are later in the day going to get an Aliyah, um, you still say, and then you also compound with that some traditional bits of learning. So after you say those Birkota Torah, which again are... Just, I keep saying this, but like the whole Seder book is just so fabulously gorgeous. Um, and just thanks God for for giving us the Torah and and a, and a prayer for that we'll be able to to pass it on to the next generation. And then and then we we study as part like you know just the same way like when you say uh, a blessing on on any mitzvah, you want to immediately do that mitzvah. So too with this. So then we we have some like ritualized Torah study that goes along with that. So you say Birkat Kohanim and you talk about, uh, we read some like uh, Mishnayot that, or Brightot that talk about like mitzvot that have infinite reward. Um, and yeah. I, I have a trivia question for you. Yeah. Because you mentioned, you know, the Kohen doesn't get an Aliyah every day because we Torah every day. Can you think of an occasion where the Torah is read five days in a row, where each day is a different reading? Um, uh, Pesach? Nope. Sorry, when it's other than, sorry, not ca- <laughs> not counting Shlosh Regalim, when do you read the Torah five days in a row, with each day a different reading? Okay, one day is Shabbos, one day is a Monday, one day is a Rosh Chodesh, uh, maybe Hanukkah ended on Friday. No, you can't have Rosh Chodesh then. Never mind. That doesn't work. All right. I don't know. It's when Rosh Hashanah starts on Thursday. So uh, Thursday, Friday, Rosh Hashanah, Shabbos. And fast day. Sunday. Sunday. And then, and then Monday. Monday. I think I didn't used to know that one. I'm sure you did. I'm sure you did. Okay. Um, anyway, so can, whatever. Okay. So just back to the list of things you might say in the morning <laughs> with that fun um, little aside. Um, so, okay. So Birkota Torah, we said, okay. And then from there, Birkota Shachar, um, which is this set. Um, so it's a little bit fraught um, because there's like a, a Orthodox men, you typically say, Shalosani Isha. Maybe we'll do a whole nother kind of podcast episode about that bracha in and of itself. But I would say that I personally love saying the bracha of Shasani Kirtzonau and think it's like such a beautiful um, affirmation and do think that 
Well, maybe I'll save this for our save it for the, save for the episode. <laughs> but uh, so keep listening to the podcast. <laughs> Anyways, um, but that whole set, many of which are not fraught at all. <laughs> they thank God for giving us the ability to stand upright and to wake up in the morning and to walk and all sorts of good things that most people really appreciate about their lives. Um, and um, so, yeah, so just in terms of the set of brachot, that one from when you first open your eyes in the morning until when you like get to Shul and are ready to daven, there's really this like whole long list of brachot that I just mentioned. They're all found in the first opening pages of your siddur. I didn't even mention when you put on your tzitzit, there's a bracha, probably because I don't do that one. <laughs> <laughs> and then obviously tefillin, when you get at talis and tefillin, when you get to shawl, if that's the thing you do. Also korbanot. Like many, there are many, many mm-hmm. passages that have like sort of been added to the siddur over the centuries from different communities and different traditions. I think, Absolutely. you know, I, I would say there's like sort of choices people make about which ones they're going to incorporate into their own religious practice. Um, I think one of the nice things about our shul starting our communal tefillah at Rabbi Shmuel Omer, sort of at the very tail end of all of those, mm-hmm. that whole section of the siddur, is that you know we sort of really we're not we really want to encourage people to say as much of it as, as much possible. of it as as possible, as meaningful as as you learn how to do, as, as makes sense to you, and we're gonna we'll wait for you, and then five minutes after start, you know, so come as early as yeah. you, shul's open, come as early as you want, uh, or as much as you want at home, and we'll begin our communal tefillah at Rabbi Shmuel Omer after that entire section has ended. Really, so what are some a, of the options in that section? So we start out with. Um, it, you have the whole um, reading of the Akedah um, that many people read every day. The Archash Khan says it's very important to read that every day. And then you have the Bracha on Kiddush Hashem, Shimcha I think that's another art scroll Koran dispute. Uh, but that's like, a, that Bracha and its appearance in Tefillah is kind of like very interesting. That's a Bracha that a person would make if, on their own kind of martyrdom also. Oh, wow. So that's like very interesting how that Bracha even got there, but um, certainly if you're ever in a show where they start with Birkona Shachar, then they're going to say that out loud. And then there'll be some quiet for people to say Korbanot. Hopefully. Hopefully, ideally there ought to be. Um, in Korbanot you'll have different, you have like a lot of different options, so certainly like the Korban Tami, like the daily sacrifices should be said. And after each section, there's a custom to say something along the lines of, may my prayer be as if I brought this Korban mm-hmm. um, today, which is is a really beautiful statement of our tefillah comes in the place of prayer. Yeah, yeah. Yes, I'll just share personally my practice. Currently, I say Birkat Shachar, um, and then I say the Ulam Yehadam, commenting the Kedusha Shema Baravim. If it's a day where I'm worried about not saying, you know, that they're, that's like Shabbat morning in certain times of the year, um, I'll say all three paragraphs of the Shema mm-hmm. at this point as well, in case I don't get to them later on in Shacharit, and then I say the Korban Hatamid. Um, and then Rabbi Shmuel Omer. So that's that's what I currently do. There's, as you mentioned, lots of room to add. Maybe Bakeda, maybe uh, Ezahomakoman. That's sort of a nice um, parak of Mishnah. I think it's purportedly the only uh, chapter in the entire Mishnah that has no disputes. It describes mm-hmm. the places in the temple where various sacrificial rites took place. And and it, it's very yeah. helpful if you know it. I said Ezahomakoman Shazvachim for many years, and it, it, it really helps in your um, Talmud study. Right. That's a good reason to say it every day so that when <laughs> you learn Zechitzachim, you'll, you'll be... Because you know what all the different... You know what Kodshei Kodashim are, you know what Kodshei Kalim yes, are, great, great. you know the Korban Pesach goes. Like, you know, all worthwhile. All <laughs> yeah. worthwhile. Totally. Anyways, whatever. That's the overlap of Torah and Tefillah. That's, you know, yeah. wonderful. Understood. Understood. The last thing I, I would want to say is um, just that I really strongly recommend 
recommend memorizing some of these tefillot, especially as you're like going about your morning and it's mm-hmm. busy and the more other humans that are involved in your morning, the busier and crazier it is. Or it's not crazy at all, but you just like, I say most of your Kodesh Achar on my walk to Shul in the morning. Mm-hmm. And that makes my walk to Shul in the morning like a much more kind of elevated experience than it would be otherwise if I were just spacing out. And, and every day something different kind of strikes me about it and I ponder it as I'm like walking down Sheridan. And I think also these these feel they're just so powerful and and having them be something that's kind of part of your vocabulary. It's very nice. I say even without memorizing the tefillot, you can still have your walks to shul be a spiritual practice. Something awesome. that sort of Zinger, the uh, Israeli tefillah educator, has been mm-hmm. uh, promoting that your like the tefillah experience begins like before you leave, like when you leave your home, like mm-hmm. and that, and and leaving your house to walk to shul. The walk to shul is part of your preparation for the prayer experience and. Without saying words, just just having it be like a sort of a meditative experience of connecting to all of creation, all of which in some way, according to the mystics, is yearning to be reunited with its creator. And you're joining every other created creature and, and physical object in this universe in, in being a creation that is yearning to connect to its creator. And that's a consciousness one can have as one is steps out the door to one's house, as one walks to shul, as one is eagerly hurrying to shul and entering the shul and preparing for tefillah, uh, as long as you're not reading emails and, like, you know, checking up on the last day's news or the socks <laughs> or weather or, or, or Twitter or whatever. Like, that, that's, you know, the phone's in the pocket or, mm-hmm. you know, then, then that, that walk to shul can also be a, a spiritual time, even without memorizing tefillah, because that's a beautiful way to um, expand the tefillah experience uh, e- even larger. I guess our, our point is... Mornings can be very challenging times, but they can also have incredible spiritual potential to start off your day on the right foot. Um, and so that was just some of our suggestions for how to how to make that happen. So one thing that we came across in our Dafyomi study in the last uh, few days has been the obligation of women for tefillah, for reciting uh, the Amidah, perhaps once a day, perhaps three times a day, and this was surprising to some people sitting around the table, and so I wanted to thought it was worth uh, people are surprised by something that they learned that that suggests that it's worth uh, discussing on the podcast. So, uh, women's obligation in in tefillah. Let's let's say you know that it's sort of presented the Mishnah as a pretty um, obvious, obvious, or not obvious. It has to be taught, right? So it's not obvious, but it's something that without it doesn't have a lot of it doesn't seem to attract a lot of debate or a lot of uh, discussion doesn't seem very fraught, uh, nor is it defined or discussed in, right? There's no, like, um, elaboration provided there, uh, right, on the DAF. So so let's let's provide some elaboration. Great. So are women obligated in tefillah? <laughs> Seemingly, yes. Okay. So the, Gemara <laughs> says, the Mishnah says yes. The Gemara seems to say yes. And most of the Rishonim and Achronim as well say yes. I think there's some who say that women's obligation in prayer is... Um, is maybe once a day. There are others who say, make to say the Amidah at one point over the course of the day. Um, there are those who say that women's obligation in tefillah is twice a day, which would mean shachrit and mincha, but not mariv. Uh, this is built on the understanding that mariv is like an optional prayer for everyone. And over the centuries, men kind of took that on as an obligation and women apparently, purportedly, never did. I know uh, women who are so serious about that, that if they want to daven mariv, they won't daven it. Mar for three days in a row. Oh, lest it be... Because it'll make a chazaka for them and then they'll be stuck with it. 
Just say so, Blue Net or something, right? Okay. Exactly. <laughs> okay. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know. Like that's interesting because I, I sort of understood that to be like womankind as opposed to an individual woman deciding. But anyone but, can be can can yeah, take something totally on fair, for themselves. Totally so. fair. Totally fair. In any event, so that 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 opinion exists. And there are also opinions that women are obligated. All three tefillot I think that also exist as well. Among I mean, you find all. The, I mean, there's a lot of rishonim, a lot of achronim, a lot of uh, scholars have written about these topics over the centuries. I think all positions. There's also an opinion uh, that you um, discussed with some. Uh, uh, emotion at the Dafyomi table. The position of my gain of Raham. So I want to say, share what, what he, uh, how he understands things and... Uh, well, I think and to what, understand the Magen of Raham, you have to talk about the Rambam. So the Rambam thinks the woman, that, that everyone... As, as, one, as one does. As one, as one does. So the Rambam thinks that there's two different levels in everyone's obligation in Tefillah. So there's a Torah-level obligation of Tefillah, but that obligation is a little bit amorphous. As with many Torah obligations, the Torah says, like, do this thing and then you need the rabbis to come along and kind of mold it so give it time give it language but with many things like we would never say like the torah says don't do malacha but it's only rabbinic that um you can't do borer um right we don't say that we say right the rabbis are the ones who teach us we only know what how to observe shabbat because of rabbinic material the torah shabbat the oral torah 39 malachot, 39 labors, what they are, how they're defined, but we understand the prohibition of sorting, for example, to be a Torah-level prohibition. So when it comes to tefillah, according to the Rambam, it works a little bit differently because there's a Torah obligation to say, utter a prayer at some point right. over the course of the day for coming upon every Jew. That's sort of a minority opinion, but the Rambam search it like very, very emphatically. And then the rabbis are the ones who say, well, actually, Shachrit Minchan Marev is the way that we, mm-hmm. like those are rabbinic obligations through which we f- fulfill this Torah obligation to pray. That seems like a fair... Yes, and so then what? But what what happens then in in this read of the Rambam is that you have a Torah level obligation just to like utter a prayer and a rabbinic level obligation to say Shacharit Mencha Marid. So when the Magen of Ram comes along and he says, I have noticed that women are not davening. And the only way that I can understand it, this is called a limut schut. It is, uh, as you pointed out when we were talking about this, a very common tool that halachic decisors use, which is to say, I'm noticing this is a very widespread custom in the community that I serve or across the Jewish people. And I have noticed that it is in contradiction with the following texts that seem to be authoritative. And instead of trying to change their community, they'll try and figure out how the custom might have developed and how the custom might actually be a reasonable, good understanding of these authoritative texts. So the Magen Avram comes along and says, I've noticed that women are not dominant. Just Magen Avram, we want to give him a century and a look. Sure, go for it. Oh, I... I, I Avram Gumbiner. I believe he's like 6th, 17th century Poland. I'm not, I'm not positive about that, though, actually. I, I was hoping you would... All right. This is your department. Thank you. I These appreciate people that. People are all just ideas <laughs> floating in space for me. Okay. Brains right. in, in a jar? Brains <laughs> in a jar, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Um, I, I want to say 17th century Poland, but... Uh, I think you're right, Poland. Okay. Anyway, it's, com- it's a commentary on the Shulchan Aruch, so that uh, on our yeah our, our specifically. Mm-hmm. He says, "I've noticed that women are not davening, and I think the the way that we can understand it is in line with this Rambam, which is that women are fulfilling what the Rambam would describe as a Torah level obligation in Tefillah, and when the rabbis establish Shacharit Min Chamarev as their interpretation of that Torah level." obligation, that interpretation only applied to men. So he would really say, actually, when we say that women are obligated in tefillah, we mean something radically different from when we say men are obligated in tefillah. Right. So the advantage of the Magen Abraham is that he has now re-read 
the rabbinic tradition in a way that uh, the outcome is that, you know, all of these Jewish women are actually fulfilling their obligations and doing the right thing and nobody's sinning or missing their violations. The, the downside is it, it's, a, it's a bit of a forced read of like the Mishnah, which, which doesn't suggest anything of the kind. And it's a forced read of the Rambam, who doesn't suggest anything of, uh, along these lines. Um, but it has the advantage of like justifying common practice. And I, I think that that is... As we said, you know, at the Daft Yomi table, uh, I think that has been uh, like a, the role of rabbinic scholars in tra- intact traditional society. You know, just we're commemorating the 20th anniversary of Professor Chaim Soloveitchik's uh, publication of Rupture and Reconstruction, a very important uh, essay that, that he published 25 years ago, uh, in which he makes this distinction that in traditional, intact traditional societies, um, People learn how to be Jews by looking at the people around them and their parents and their grandparents and their neighbors and their friends, mm-hmm. everyone doing the same thing. Right? Nobody would ever think to look at a book to learn how much matzah do I have to eat at Pesach because my entire life, my Zadie has been breaking off a piece of matzah and giving it to everyone. And my t- yeah, and, and so and everyone I know has been given a piece of matzah by, by his and her Zadie uh, you know, for their entire lives and, and going back to Sinai. And that's, that's, that's how we perceive things in an intact traditional society. Uh, when that breaks down, we look to books and we look to books, we, you know, we, we sometimes reconstruct these traditions in ways that were that were quite different. Um, I, and I would say one piece of that that's even harder for women is that most of these books were written by men about men's practices. And so even in places where it's like assumed that women are part of it, because there's no reason to say women aren't part of it, it's still written in the masculine. The stories are almost always about men. Um, and it's very hard to reconstruct what women's practices actually the internal were. right we don't right what were women's like right he thinks he observed women as not davening but we don't necessarily know that is true and we don't have women's perspectives or narratives on their own religious inter- um, experience or we, we have some but not not quite the same volume and not quite the same type of of genre of, of literature and that that actually makes it really hard to then reinvent in a reconstruction world what Jewish women's spiritual and religious practice should look like yeah. because we don't have literature and we can't just learn it mimetically and so then you have this debate of like well sh- are women should we just try our best to be men or should we say no we're clearly not obligated in that so nothing and then there's like a void but Presumably, once upon a time, that void was filled with all sorts of other things. We just don't know what they were because they're yeah. mimetic. I, I would say, like the first stage of like Orthodox feminism, um, maybe the least fraught stage, is to reclaim uh, and reinvest in those practices, which are either allowed by or, or demanded by the canonical text that we affirm. And but for whatever reason, women have not taken them on. So if like if women have not been leading zimun for one another when eating meals together, like that seems to be. Uh, either an option or an obligation when, when probably an obligation probably when we need together. Uh, and that's another example, by the way, that, that you have Rishonim also saying, why aren't women doing this? It's clear from the Gemara that they should be. And they, the answer is, well, women aren't literate, so they can't. But nowadays, when women for sure are literate enough to lead Zimun to say like, oh, well, I guess I don't have to because of that, Limun Schut feels really not good, actually. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, and similarly with Tzfilah, that um, e- even though McGain Abraham noticed women, you know, in his 
community in his in his era were, were seemingly not uh, saying tefillah. I think it's uh, like the clearest sense of the mission, the Talmud, and the medieval sources that and, and the Shulchan Aruch that women should say certainly shachrit and mincha. And and then it's a kind of us as a community to to make space for that and make time for that and prioritize that and orient our community around making that possible and promoting that. Uh, we have old precedent for that. Uh, the the Ravya in medieval Germany noted that even though there's not there's no technical obligation for women to hear the shofar, women in medieval Germany cared a lot about the shofar. And he says, yeah, we should, this seems to be really important to them. Mm-hmm. Let's make sure that this can happen for women in our community. And, and, and toast what about women leaning? Um, and leaning at the Seder. Leaning at the Seder, sorry. Yes. Not just leaning over in general. <laughs> or leaning in. Leaning in. <laughs> leaning in, yes. Leaning in, in. leaning over. <laughs> um, but, but also we have, even earlier than that, we have Rabbi Elazar of Worms, the Rokayach. I talked about this actually Shabbat morning just now. His, so his wife was like brutally murdered in their, it's like a horrible story, I think, in their home. <laughs> um, it, it was terrible to be a Jew in Worms. Um, anyways. Um, and um, he, so he eulogized her and we have his eulogy because wow. Wow. Okay, who's also a poet. He talks about her leading tefillot for women, mm. uh, which is like fasc- infinitely yeah, fascinating. Yeah, like, yeah, what yeah. does that mean, and what are these tefillot? Yeah. But, but to then, you know, a couple, a bunch of hundred years later, to have the Mangan of Ram saying, um, you know, you know, one country over saying, uh, saying women aren't davening when you know, five hundred years before him, we, we have evidence that women mm-hmm, were davening mm-hmm, and were mm-hmm. leading each other in tefillot. So then, like, well, what yeah. are women supposed to do, and what are they doing, and what have they? done and, and it ends up just being like we have very scattered and then the, but but luckily for us now uh, we have all there's all these scholars in israel who are studying this like medieval women's piety jewish women's piety um elisha baumgarten is one of the few who's publishing in english um but but there is some, some like exciting bits and pieces sort of grossman's book is also in english now right uh, Mardot is now in i think so yeah english also right i guess it would be called i don't know pious and rebellious or something pious and rebellious yeah maybe <laughs> okay. uh, like i think we have it in hebrew at home but it's i think that's also in english yeah but there, yeah it's a fruitful field of scholarship absolutely um, so anyways, just to like dive back to our topic for one minute, um, I would say I have Davin Shachris Minchmarev every day for at least since my bat mitzvah, I don't know, if not before then. And um, I strongly recommend it. <laughs> yeah, I think strong recommendation. I mean, but again, I think it's, it's I don't want to like impose a burden. I don't think it's like on like women alone to kind of like bear that burden. I I think it's like a communal kind of decision to like invest in making that possible in terms of have couples make choices about parenting, about communities, allocate resources about childcare and fila options and early minion and late minion and all of these things and and space for women in shul and and to dive in outside of shul that, you know, like a, I don't know, when there's a mincha minion at a wedding, like is it, is it a, a, is it a place that women are invited to join as well, yeah. uh, et cetera, et cetera. I, so I think it's not, I don't want to, I don't think it's, uh, you know, I think uh, individuals making choices is like the necessary first step, but like communal support and encouragement uh, and celebration, I think is also a, a necessary component as well. Sure, yes, definitely. It really doesn't feel good to be like the only woman at a minchaminion at a wedding. But um, I feel like over time I've amassed like a group of friends who I'm often at weddings <laughs> with. Who we kind of like scout out before and we have like male allies who are sort of like, let us know what minion is. And then they like organize it so they like make sure there's a spot for us. It's, it's like really, you know, you can like build a, build a community around these kinds of values. So Indeed. It's good. Indeed. <laughs> um, yeah, so everyone should dive in. I think that's the takeaway. Very good takeaway. <laughs> 
Um, so welcome, Dr. Klebs, to the podcast. We're so grateful that you've agreed to join me today. When did you come to Anshishalom? What, what brought you to Lakeview in the first place? I, uh, I came to Anshishalom after I got off the boat. <laughs> the boat brought you straight yeah, to Lake Michigan? 1949. Wow. 1949. And uh, Rabbi Davis was a rabbi here. Lovely, lovely man. So I continued here until today. Oh, I, I was also a member of Rabbi Rockup Shul on Patterson. Mm. There used to be a lot more shuls in this area, right? Uh, well, these were the two Orthodox shuls, Rabbi Rockup and, and uh, Rabbi Davis. Mm-hmm. And uh, then I had the hiatus of about two years, and I went to, into the service. When I came back, I spent more time in this shul. Nice. And your English must have improved over that time. It got a little better, yes. <laughs> yeah. But originally, Rabbi, you told me Rabbi Davis spoke to you in Yiddish. In Yiddish, yes. Were there a lot of Yiddish speakers in a the community at the time? A lot of Yiddish speakers, yes. Uh, at that time, there were quite a few Holocaust survivors here. Mm-hmm. Were they mostly older than you at the time? They were older, yeah. Much, much older. And they were all gone. So uh, I was one of the youngest who survived. Right. And when did you become, you're a dentist, right? Right. When did you, did you do dental school in Chicago? Yeah, I went to dental school here, yes. And uh, after dental school, I uh, went into, into the Air Force. Wow. I was a dentist in the Air Force a couple of years. Did you ever do like dental procedures on airplanes to people? Not, not on the airplanes, <laughs> no. No, we were flying B-52s, so you don't do uh, dental work on a B-52. Oh, okay. <laughs> and when I got out of the service, I did research and teaching at the University of Illinois. Mm. And then the uh, dean of my dental school at Illinois said it would be a good idea if I would go to the Hadassah Dental School, which just opened up in Jerusalem, wow. and teach there. So I did. And uh, I was there about a half a year. And my, my mother wasn't feeling well, and I felt my, my place was to be with my mother. So I came back, mm-hmm. and then I opened up my own practice. And so it was your mother that kind of kept you in Chicago for yes. those years. Yes, yes, Very nice. You, yeah. You've seen the shul transform quite significantly over time. Well, the mechitz is the same size. <laughs> <laughs> And that's the only thing yeah, that matters, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, right, right. But my mother was a member of the shul. Wow. And my stepfather also. They were both Holocaust survivors. And it was just your stepfather's yard site a few days ago. Yesterday. Yesterday. My stepfather and today for my mother. Right. Wow. What did they do when, when they arrived in Chicago? My stepfather worked for the Federal Reserve Bank. And uh, my mother went to school. And then she worked in a clothing store. And in the north side always, or? Uh, on the west side, actually. She worked, yes. Polish mm-hmm. neighborhood, because she spoke Polish also. Right. Russian and Polish. So. That's easier that way. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> and if someone in the show wanted to to meet you now, we have, thank God, we have opportunities to hear your stories. Um, you know, on Yom HaShoah, you spoke very beautifully last year. Um, but you're also just a, a valued member of our show for all, all sorts of reasons. 
Um, so if someone in the show wanted to, to find you, they've heard this podcast and they said, wow, Dr. Klebs, he sounds amazing, which would be the correct takeaway. Like on a Shabbat morning, or where do you sit in shul? If someone, uh, if they wanted to meet you, where would they find Anyone you? Anyone who wants to talk to me in shul, yes, I'll talk to them. <laughs> do you want to tell our listeners where you sit? Uh, row J, uh, number eight, I think. Great. And you and Baji also have sponsored, or Rager Fellow, you sponsored the Yom Kippur Break Fast. Yeah, fast. the Break Fast, right. I just uh, mentioned to the rabbi, I said, uh, I remember Yom Kippur in Auschwitz. They gave me a piece of bread in the evening. I took half of it, ate it, and the other half, I waited until after Yom Kippur. Wow. It was a struggle not to keep going into my pocket and take yeah. out the piece of bread which I had in there. I was 11 years old. And now that I have the schut to sponsor Opfastung for all my wonderful Jewish brothers and sisters, <laughs> can't complain. Thank God. Yeah, and that's uh, you know, it's the anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz this week. Yeah, today, yes. We got to hear from you at, um, at Sudash Lishi where, where you were when that happened. And the answer is, unfortunately, I suppose... That's probably the wrong word, but not at Auschwitz. Yeah, yeah, it was on the death march. Miracle that I made it. And we're very grateful, and we're grateful yeah. to have you in our community. Thank you, Leah. Thank you for joining us this week in the Straw Hat. Thank you, as always, to our producer, Haley Leventhal, for all she does to make this podcast happen. If you have positive feedback, we would absolutely love if you would reach out to us in person, send us voice notes, emails. You can slip notes under the doors of our offices. All of that would be totally awesome, and we would love it. If you did not love this episode and you want to tell us about that, I think the best place to put that would be in your Tfilo. You have um, three options every day when you can register that in your tefillot to a Kaddish Baruch Hu. I think that's a great place for you to put those complaints. Thank you so much for joining us today. I hope you have a wonderful week.